He's very kind and gave me a couple seeds and, and a couple pieces. It looks like it might even be some granola crumbs. It's what? It's wheat. Oh, well, I'll take that home and turn it into some bread then. Joey brought me some wheat. Uh, you never know. You just never know what you're going to find here. Um, and real quickly, before I dive in, I have three quick announcements for you. Um, out in our lobby, underneath our coat rack, there are two things that you may take home for free if you can use them. Number one, there are some uh, extra VBS shirts, especially some kids' size stuff and some very small adult size stuff. So if you could use a VBS t-shirt, there's like three little boxes of them out there in the lobby. Go ahead and take one of those home. Second thing, um, one of our friends here at church is downsizing, and so they've been cleaning out some parts of their home, and they have a whole bunch of mason jars, ball jars, canning jars. They're in great shape. There's like seven or eight boxes of them out there. If you are a person who does canning or if you've been thinking, you know, I've got all this garden stuff I'd like to do canning, here's your chance. They're free for whoever gets out there first. Don't push and shove. You know, be kind and loving. Remember what Ross told us this morning. But those things are out in the lobby. Just take them home if, if that's something that you can use. And then um, the last thing that I have really quick is that uh, a group called Christian Farmers Outreach a couple of you guys know about Christian Farmers Outreach. They're setting up a stand at the Cecil County Fair in a couple weeks, and they're looking for a few people who might be willing to man or woman that stand and talk to people who go by and tell them about the gospel. And Christian Farmers Outreach is willing to kind of train you how to give their little, their little speech. If, if you are a person who can connect with agricultural folks, and if you could give like a two-hour shift or a four-hour shift sometime through the week at the Cecil County Fair, with the Christian Farmers Outreach. Please talk to me today, okay? Talk to me today. All right, those are our, our, those are our late breaking news. I wonder, now that I've given you a couple updates for today, I'm going to see if I can take you back to last week and see if you can remember what Pastor Steve preached about. He was in the book of Mark. He was reading from Mark chapter 8. Do you remember the passage from Pastor Steve's sermon last week? Well, here was part of it. Part of it was in Mark 8, starting in verse 27. He said, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples replied, some say that you are John the Baptist. That means he's the one that would kind of come as a prophet. Others say Elijah, still others, one of the great prophets. And Jesus looked at his disciples. He says, this is recorded in verse 29, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Now, it's interesting to me to remember, and I don't know if you remember this all the way back in January when we talked about the background of the book of Mark. Mark was not a person who was an eyewitness to a lot of the things that happened and that he wrote about. Now, remember, 2,000 years ago, in the time when Mark was writing, most people were illiterate. Most people could not read or write. And so if someone had a story to tell, they might hire someone, if they had any money, they might hire someone to write it down for them or to take an account or that sort of thing. Reading and writing was a luxury reserved for the very wealthy and the very powerful. And so Mark was a person who could read and who could write. And many of the disciples kind of learned those skills as they went along, even if they had been illiterate at a younger stage in life. But Mark, who wrote down this Gospel of Mark, got his information, not from being an eyewitness of Jesus, but Mark got most of his information from Peter. Peter, 
that disciple, one of Jesus' very closest disciples, Peter, who was there for all of the big things that happened in Scripture, Peter told Mark what happened, and Mark wrote it down. So that's interesting to me, and it might be interesting to you as we continue on today, looking at Mark chapter 8. Here is Jesus, says to his disciples, and this is coming from Peter, as it was said to Mark, Mark wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter is telling Mark, I remember, Jesus and us, we were going around the villages, Jesus asked us, who do people say I am? We replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. What about you, he asked us, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, and if Peter was telling this story to Mark, he would have said, I told him, you are the Christ. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples, these 12 disciples, had been with him for almost two years. They had been hoping that he was the Messiah and the Son of God since the beginning. They also knew what John the Baptist said, that, hey, this is the one who I've come to prepare the way for. These disciples had heard Jesus' amazing teaching, and they had realized that he spoke and taught like nobody else could do. So they had experienced that. These disciples had been blown away by his miracles. They had seen people healed. They had seen demons cast out. They had seen the blind regain their sight. They had seen those who couldn't speak or hear suddenly be able to speak and hear. And these people were aware of their own sins. At this point, they've talked to Jesus about their inadequacy. And so they're aware of all of these things. And Peter is telling Mark about this. Mark wrote it down, and now we read it. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, one of the stories that Peter told Mark was about Jesus walking on the water. And after Jesus walked on the water and caught up with the disciples in the boat, they all looked at him and said, certainly you are the Son of God. These disciples had seen and heard and experienced Jesus. They had observed him, and they had proclaimed that indeed he was the Son of God. That's all background. And now here, Jesus is asking them, who do you say I am? They say, you are the Messiah. It seems to me that that's a great foundation for amazing things to happen. It seems to me like that's a pretty good background for, for Jesus to give some deeper teaching. But now this brings us to today's passage in Mark 8, verse 31. After all this, after Peter, the representative of the disciples, says, you are indeed the Messiah, it says, Jesus then, verse 31, began to teach them that the Son of Man, talking about himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now remember, who is the source for Mark's information? Peter is. And now here's Peter telling this story. Peter basically would have said to Mark, well, I took Jesus. This would have been quite a thing to confess, right? Peter says, I took Jesus aside. Jesus has been speaking very plainly. Peter has said, you are the Lord. They've seen everything that Jesus has been doing. They've heard everything that he's been teaching. And now Jesus turns the corner and says, it's not all going to be great. There is going to be suffering. Jesus says, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to be rejected by the people who should know who the Messiah is. These elders, chief priests, teachers of the law. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and rebuked him rebuked him. Peter had just said, within a day or two before this, you are the Messiah, and now Peter begins to rebuke him? How big do you have to think you are to begin to rebuke the Messiah? Do any of you men remember the first time that you thought you were stronger than dad? I don't know if this same kind of thing, I don't think this same kind of thing happens among you ladies. But I remember, 
I remember growing up, I was the oldest child in my family, and I always knew that my dad was strong. I knew that he physically could do a lot of things. I wanted to be like that. And I would test it from time to time. We would, we would wrestle. And dad was kind, and he never hurt me, but I didn't win. <laughs> and as I got a little bit older, sometimes we would arm wrestle. I don't know if anybody arm wrestles anymore, but we would arm wrestle. And we would sit at the table, and dad's, dad's bicep would pop, and I'd try to, and he would just sit there and say, well, are you going to start? <laughs> right? I remember, I remember, though, when I went away to college, I had a growth spurt, and I started lifting some weights. My dad had a back surgery. <laughs> that helped. <laughs> and I remember for the first time at about 18 or 19 years old, kind of coming back from school and thinking, you know, I might be able to take the old guy now. But by then, didn't matter as much. Do you remember, do you remember men when you kind of grew into your own physicality, maybe some of you are still waiting, but do you remember the first time that you thought, you know, I, I think if me and dad were to arm wrestle, I might at least be able to hold my own. There's a certain kind of, there's a certain kind of satisfaction that comes with that. I remember that. Maybe I'm the only one, but I, I remember that just knowing, okay, I feel like a grown-up now. but I never bragged about being stronger than my father. What kind of an attitude must Peter have had after he heard Jesus teach, after he saw Jesus do his miracles for these two years, after he saw Jesus rescue people over and over, and after Peter actually said, you are the Son of God, what kind of pride must he have been feeling? It must be eons beyond what I was thinking as a college kid. What must Peter have been thinking to pull Jesus aside and say, Jesus, you're all wrong. What are you talking about? To rebuke him, to scold him. Well, it was a big deal because we see how Jesus responded. And remember, Peter is telling us this. Peter knew he was right there. Verse 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So Peter pulled Jesus aside, kind of has a little one-on-one -on -one conversation. Jesus, what are you talking about? Suffering, dying, no. Jesus didn't just speak to Peter. What does it say? Jesus turned and looked at all of his disciples, and then Jesus rebuked Peter. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. I don't know if there is a greater I don't know if there's a greater charge that you can level against someone than to say you are thinking, speaking, and acting like Satan. But this is what Jesus does. And remember, Peter told this story to Mark. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This same Peter who just moments before, maybe hours, maybe a day or two before, had said that you are the Messiah, now is being accused of thinking like Satan, not having in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Any of you fall into the same kind of foolishness? Any of you absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah? You know that he's the Lord. You see what he has done. You've experienced him in your life. You've observed him in others. Have any of you ever fallen into that trap of thinking that you know better than God? 
Oh, you love the Lord, and you are saved by God, but have any of us, in our thinking, ever gotten to the place where we thought we knew better? We will take things into our own hands. We will tell God how things ought to be. We can identify with Peter, can't we? Even if we don't say those things out loud, how many times have you thought, oh God, you're doing this wrong. God, you're taking too long. God, what is, have any of you ever accused God in that way? Doesn't mean that you don't believe, but like Peter, perhaps you had in mind merely human concerns. Look, look at how Jesus continues this little conversation. Peter pulled Jesus aside, begins to rebuke him. Jesus speaks to Peter and all the disciples and say, get behind me, Satan, you don't have in mind the things of God. And then, verse 34, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. It's almost as if he says, all right, we're going to talk this out. We're going to straighten out this situation. He calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You know that thing we talked about just a moment ago about telling God that he did things wrong, about maybe having the the thoughts of the world in our minds instead of the thoughts of God? These are the kinds of passages that can help us to see if that's our situation. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Is that how you live Is it how I live? How many of us, in our belief, I mean, we're not trying to reject the Lord. We're certainly not trying to set aside our faith. But how many of us, in our belief, really are denying ourselves and following after Jesus? How many of us really are taking up a cross and following Jesus? When we talk about crosses, and and we've sung about crosses this morning. We sung about the cross, the old rugged cross. We have to remember, in Jesus' day, before Jesus rose from the grave and before people started wearing crosses around their neck, the cross was just simply an instrument of destruction. The cross was a Roman tool whereby they publicly executed people, and the cross was invented because it was the most painful, agonizing, drawn-out killing machine that they could endeavor. And there were estimates that say up to 30,000 Jewish people were executed by the Roman Empire on crosses. Jesus was not the only one. Jesus is not the only one to have died this way. In fact, the Romans used to hang... The Romans were known for their roads, right? How many of you remember that? Like sixth-grade civics class. The Romans had their roads. What did they put by the roads? They put crosses by the roads. And if there were people who rebelled against the Roman Empire, if there were people who would not get in line, if there were people who would not follow the law, they would hang them on these crosses to die, and they would do it beside the roads so that people would see this is what happens when you mess with Rome. Jesus died on one of those crosses. What makes Jesus unique is not the dying on the cross. What makes Jesus unique is the fact that he rose from the grave three days later. Even if 30,000 Jews died on the cross, only one rose from the grave by his own power three days later. That's the power of Jesus, but it's harder to put an empty tomb on a necklace than a cross. Here, Jesus says to these people who would have understood the cross not as a sign of victory the way we see it today, 
These people who would have understood the cross as a public shame, a disgrace, an execution by the state for disobeying the laws. Jesus says, you pick that up and you carry me. He says, you be willing to stand for me against all other authorities. I don't know if Jesus ever used air quotes. This might have been one of those times that he could have. He says, look, if you want to be my disciple, you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Do you think that's the kind of message that the disciples were expecting when they proclaimed that he was the Lord? When Peter said, you are Jesus, the Messiah, and as these guys around him, knowing that they were his inner circle, do you think that what they figured they would get would be a life of suffering and difficulty and carrying a cross? No, they were expecting to be in the court of the king. They were expecting Jesus, the Messiah, to come and take over the world for the Lord. They were expecting to have high places, lives certainly of influence. Well, they did. But they were lives of poverty. They were lives of pain. They were often lives of martyrdom and death. And Jesus expected this. What did he say? Verse 35, you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. He says, you, you, try, to, you try to gather around yourself all the things that seem to be important, these, these human concerns, you're going to lose your real life. But he says, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Verse 36, a little bit of clarification now. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give exchange for their soul? Jesus is saying, look, you want to follow me, you need to leave behind all those comforts, all those things that you've been trying to gather around yourself. He says, leave that stuff, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You, you try to save your life by collecting all these things, you're going to lose your life because you're losing your soul. What good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Church, you can't gain the whole world and still have Jesus, right? Right? This all falls under the banner of the disciples having said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Jesus telling them, please keep the concerns of God in the front of your mind and not merely human concerns. Jesus goes on. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus told his disciples, he says, look, I'm going to suffer. He says, I'm going to die. In fact, he says, I'm going to die on a cross, which, again, would have been unthinkable for these guys. I mean, this is where, this is where political losers go to die on the cross. By the, Jesus says, that's, that's how I'm going to die. He says, but I'm going to rise from the grave three days later, and I will return in power. And now he says, when I return in power, if you have held firm to my gospel, if you have held firm to my gospel, if you've not rejected me, that's what ashamed means here. Ashamed is not just embarrassed. We often think of ashamed, if, if you're ashamed of Jesus, you're embarrassed of Jesus, or maybe you're afraid to speak up. No, ashamed here is more than just a feeling. It's more than just that angst. Ashamed means to despise someone or to distance yourself from someone or to reject someone. Jesus says, if you will accept me rather than rejecting me, when I come back, I will accept you rather than rejecting you. This is the message of Jesus Christ. He brings it to his disciples, and Peter couldn't understand it. 
Because even though Peter had been following for two years, even though Peter had been filled by the Holy Spirit enough to be able to proclaim that Jesus was Lord, Peter still had this framework in his mind that said that living for the Lord meant being a big shot here on this earth. Jesus says, no, no, that's not how this works. Again, I'm going to ask you, how are you doing with that kind of an attitude? How are you doing as you realize the truth that following Jesus does not make life easier? Oh, following Jesus makes life better. There are blessings and there is joy and there is a peace that passes all understanding. Absolutely. But following Jesus does not mean that pain goes away, does it? Is there anybody here that can testify that following Jesus means that there is still suffering in life? Sure there is. There are hard things that happen, things that happen to us, things that we do to ourselves. Jesus says, look, there will be suffering in this life. It was hard for Peter to get, and it's really hard for us to get because here's what I would like. I don't ever want to rebuke the Lord. I don't ever want to pull Jesus aside and say he's doing it wrong. But you know what I would really like is if me following Jesus well meant that all of life would go well. I'd kind of like that, if I'm honest with you. I'd kind of like it if the better I was, the more good stuff I could get. Now, that's a double-edged sword because the reality is I'm not that great. And so whoever was giving out the good stuff would say, well, Jesse, you don't measure up much anyway. That's the reality for all of us who are sinners. But, you know, it'd be kind of nice if for every good thing I did, I got, I got paid for it or rewarded for it here on earth. That'd be kind of nice. I mean, if you're honest, don't you think that'd be kind of nice too? Wouldn't you like that? I mean, wouldn't you like whatever good things you can scrape together? Like, I was nice to that, I was nice to that guy the other day who was a jerk to me. I could, I could use a million dollars for that. that. That cost me something, right? Wouldn't you like it if it worked that way? Well, it doesn't work that way. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, look, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And he said, if you want to follow me, your life is going to be the same way. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Jesus is talking to them about this whole different economy. He's talking to them about glory and riches in heaven. He's talking about justification here on earth, but he's talking about salvation that is going to carry them into eternity. He says, look, you guys are going to be around here for a couple more decades at most. He says, these decades on earth might be difficult. but carry your cross and follow me and I'll remember you forever. All right, it's time to take a commercial break because I need to figure out what I'm going to say next. I've got a couple things here on the page. I'm not sure which. Have you ever done one of those books like the choose your own ending? Like you get to the bottom of the page. It's like if you want Bobby to, to open the cellar door, go to page 84. But if you want Bobby to turn around and run home, go to page 72. I feel like this sermon's at one of those points right now. So I'm going to pause and take a moment and just tell you a little story. Two nights ago, um, there was a carnival in Oxford, right? The Sacred Heart Catholic Church has their carnival every once in a while. One of Bree's friends invited her to go to the carnival. In fact, there was a group of friends. And, and um, so I was the grown-up who was going to be kind of on site while these while these girls were riding their rides and getting their snacks. And I was um, super excited about that job because, you know, 
That seemed like it'd be really fun. So I, I, I kind of dropped Brie off, and she went there with friends, and they're great girls, and they had a good time. And, um, and so I was kind of roaming around, and I had taken a book along, because I'm turning into the kind of guy that takes a book to a carnival. I don't like it. I'm confused by it. But I took a book along, and so I walked around, and I got a snack, and I had a little something to eat, and, you know, I still knew that I had a couple hours ahead of me. And so I was looking for a place to sit and read, and there weren't a lot of great places to sit and read. And I thought, well, maybe the church building is open. And I know the priest of the Catholic Church. His name is Father Joe Shinoski. He's a fantastic man of God. I love him. And, and we get along really well. And I thought, well, maybe the doors will be open, and I'll go inside and sit in the church. Lots of comfortable seats in the church. I walked, and of course, the doors to the church were open. This is like 5.30 on Friday night. I walked in, and there were a couple ladies in the lobby, and then one lady looked at me and said, are you here for confession? I said, no. Uh, I said, no. I actually just kind of came for a quiet place to read, but tell me what you're doing. And she, so she sat down with me, and, um, and she said, on the first Friday of every month at the Catholic Church, they have, and she described this service to me, where basically from 6 p.m. until 2 a.m., the first Friday of every month at the Catholic Church, they have, they have a confession time, and then they have a mass, and then they do a whole lot of scripture reading out loud, and they do prayers, and then there's a break, Around 10 o'clock p.m., they take a break, and everybody has some fellowship time together. And then they have another Mass, and there's confession, and everything wraps up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, oh, Father Joe, God bless you. That's a long night. And it was really interesting because I, so, so they were telling me about the services that are coming up, and I went out and they checked and looked, and the girls were still having a good time, and the, and the carnival was filling up. But I didn't feel like hanging out there, so I went back into the church, and I just sat down. And I sat through my first ever Catholic Mass. I had just never been to one before. But I sat in the back. And I just observed as everything happened. And with the prayers that I could full-heartedly pray with, F-U-L-L, full-heartedly pray with, I prayed. And there were a couple things that they do that I'm not into, and that's cool. They, they did their thing. It's not going to infect me, right? They do their thing. We do ours. A lot of similarities, some differences. But I sat there, and I was blessed to be there. And the whole time, I'm seeing the lights flashing outside the windows. I'm hearing the carnival thing over here. I'm hearing Katy Perry singing her songs from the speakers on the rides while I'm in the Catholic Church observing a Catholic Mass. Here's what I was thinking, and I couldn't shake this thought as I was sitting there. I wondered if I was any closer to God sitting on the back row of that church than I was when I was walking around eating my little shish kebab at the carnival. Do you think God is closer in one place or the other? Do you think that when I was sitting in the church building, do you think that God said, oh, finally, I can get close to you now? And do you think that when I walked out to the carnival, that had just, you know, there was nothing evil happening there, but let me tell you, there is a whole interesting crowd of people that you see at a Houghton carnival. Do you think that when I walked around and, and got my snack and just kind of kept an eye on, on what was going on, do you think God said, well, Jesse, I can't follow you, follow you there. Good luck, you're on your own. Do you think that God retreats? Do you think that, do you think that carnivals scare him off? Do you think that, like, bad pop music. God says, oh, I'm out. I'm <laughs> it's amazing how we often think in our minds. We get this idea that, 
God is some places and not in other places. We get this idea that, that we better line ourselves up in, in the right spot so that we can be close to God. Now, don't get me wrong. There is good and evil. There is good conduct and bad conduct. There is sin and righteousness. There are some things that we should not participate in, and there are things that we ought to turn around and leave from if they are happening, right? But I was, I was reminded on Friday night, as I was just kind of sitting back and watching a lot of stuff happen, I was reminded about the incredible love that God has for people, both the people who were sitting in that sanctuary and the people who were sitting in the zipper ride outside. I was thinking about how God loves all of them and how his heart bleeds. For every person in that Catholic sanctuary and for every person in the parking lot at the carnival, for every person in this room right now, how God just desires for all of us to lay down our sin and lay down our thinking of the world and all the structures and hierarchies that we imagine happening here on this earth, I wonder if God is just, is just so hungry for us to leave that behind and instead turn to him with all of our hearts. Because even those of us here in this room sometimes get distracted by the things of the world. I was thinking as I picked up Bree and her friend and as I took them home and as I was kind of processing that later that night and, and really all day yesterday, just kind of thinking about this. I was struck by how easy it is for Peter and for us to say that we believe in Jesus as Lord and to even really believe it and be saved and yet still say foolish things. Still think that we need to put God in his place and still think that we know best. We are not left helpless, church. The scriptures guide us, tell us how to live. Jesus showed us how to live. We're not living in a world where just anything goes. No, no, there is right and there is wrong and we must cling to what is right. But I wonder if sometimes we get distracted I just wonder if sometimes we start thinking things about God that are not entirely true. And I wonder if sometimes I wonder if sometimes we are in need of the same rebuke that Peter got, where Jesus would say, "Come on. Stop thinking in the ways of the world and start thinking the ways of God." So as I close up today, I'm just going to leave you with this. This Peter, the one who dictated so much to Mark and told him what to write down. This Peter, who's the one that said, you are the Lord, and then not too many days later said, how dare you? This Peter went on to write a couple of books that are still preserved. I'm going to read from 1 Peter and chapter 3. Ross read a bit of this passage this morning, right? Very simple but deep instructions on how to live. If we are to believe in Jesus, if we're to try to follow after the ways of God, here's what Peter said. All of you, all of you, be like-minded, 
be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. Hey, Americans, on the 4th of July weekend, be humble. We're not good at that. We become a very proud people. And not just the people out there. I feel that a lot of us are getting proud. Be careful. The scripture tells us be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. You heard Ross read this this morning. Now let me read for you the last couple of verses. In 1 Peter 3.13, here's what, here's what Peter who says, says to us. He says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Church, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why? Peter wraps it up this way, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Peter, even though he made some mistakes, and Peter, even though he shouldn't have taken Jesus aside, Peter, Peter sorted this all out, and God continued to work in Peter so that he was able to write these incredibly wise and powerful words. Peter was able to proclaim, and we see it in print now, in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Christ was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And now Jesus tells us to take up our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow him. Not thinking in the ways of the world, but thinking after Christ's categories, which means that you don't meet insult with insult, but you love people. You don't repay evil with evil, but you seek peace. We don't get proud about who we are or what we've done, but we are compassionate and humble. To this we are called so that we may inherit a blessing. Church, will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us your scripture so that we can dive into to a deeper understanding of who you are and, and Jesus, understanding what you did and what you said and how you taught. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this, this window into the past. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for restoring Peter after he said so many knuckleheaded things. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for offering us that same salvation, that same restoration for all the mistakes that we've made. Lord, I pray that you would help us as you helped Peter. Help, help us to set aside the thinking that would have us align with the rest of this dark world. But Lord, instead, help us to realize, help us to realize how much you love us and to think the way you think. Help us to see that you are calling after all people that they may turn to you. Lord, help us to see that, that you are loving and compassionate for all who turn to you. And Lord, help us to see that it is our mission to be the same way. Lord, again, I pray that you would help us to be humble. Help us to be loving. 
and compassionate. Help us to seek peace and pursue it. Lord, help us not to repay evil with evil. Oh, we want to. Oh, Lord, we want to sometimes. But Lord, help us to meet evil with good. Lord, we need your help. Because on our own, we are just selfish sinners. On our own, we just fight fire with fire. Lord, we need you. And so please, show us how to live for you. And give us the courage and the power to do it. Even if it means taking up our crosses, denying ourselves, and suffering for doing good. Thank you, God. Thank you for the blessings that we do have. Thank you for the ways that you've looked upon us. Thank you for the suffering that you've saved us from. But Lord, if suffering comes, and when suffering comes, help us not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But to continue to speak about him and think about him and live for him in everything. Church, can you say amen? Amen. Would you stand together as we sing our closing song today? This last song is called I.